Good morning. I have no idea if I'm on. Am I on? That means you have to listen to me. I want to bring you greetings first from my pastor, Pastor Jonathan Espinosa, and uh, the elders and the people of Iglesia Nueva Vida, people who love me uh, even when they don't understand me. And I'm praying for that same anointing this morning. Just wait a second. Lord, help us to be quiet. Help us learn to be quiet so we can hear you. Help me to be still. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us today. That you'd speak to each heart. You'd speak to my heart. That you would change us today. That you would change me today. Lord, before it's all too late. Before it's all too late. Help us to change. Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be focusing on a king named Amaziah, king of Judah. He mustered his army to go fight against an army of Edomites, men of Seir, who were threatening Judah and Jerusalem. But Amaziah was afraid that he didn't have enough soldiers, so he hired 100,000 warriors from Israel to help him fight the Edomites. But before he went out to battle, God sent him a prophet who said, Listen, don't take those extra 100,000 soldiers. God wants you to go just with your own army. Let those other guys go. The point was that God wanted Amaziah to trust him and to believe that the one true God would help Judah win the victory. As we're going to see shortly, Amaziah obeyed God, did exactly what he was supposed to do, and he won a great victory because God gave it to him. Shocking victory, really. Stunning victory over his enemies. But then Amaziah did something that is really hard to understand and hard to explain. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So we're going to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you're able. Stand with me in honor of the Word of God and its holy author. 2 Chronicles 25, starting in verse 11. Amaziah took courage and led out his people. He went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The people of Judah captured another 10,000 alive, took them to the top of Selah, threw them down from the top of Selah, so that all of them were dashed to pieces. Now, After Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up as his gods, and worshipped them, making offerings to them. The Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, Why have you resorted to a people's gods who could not deliver their own people from your hand? Once more that last sentence. Why have you resorted to a people's gods who could not deliver their own people from your hand. Lord, we're asking today 
for your teaching and for your anointing. Lord Jesus, we invite you to come. We give you room. We give you space. We give you time to express your heart and to satisfy yourself. May we respond in such a way that you rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So we have to understand exactly what's happening here. Amaziah is the king of Judah and servant of the one true God. In obedience to and in the name of that one true God, Amaziah attacks the enemy and God gives him a total victory, defeating and destroying the army of the sons of Seir. And what what does Amaziah do after vanquishing his enemies? Instead of destroying their idols, the false gods worshipped by his enemies, Amaziah adopts these false gods, makes them his own, sets up little temples for them, worships them, burns incense to them. That is, Amaziah decides not to serve the one true victorious God who had just given him victory and instead chooses to serve the dead, false, empty, defeated gods of Seir. False gods that couldn't even rescue the sons of Seir from Amaziah's own hand. In other words, Almighty God showed Amaziah very clearly that he and he alone is the true and living God And then after that battle, Amaziah knew that the gods of Seir were nothing. Even so, in spite of it all, Amaziah decided to keep those gods for himself and to worship them as if they were alive, as if they were powerful, as if they were worth serving. He chose to worship idols that had been clearly and finally defeated by the one true God. Idols that Amaziah himself had dominated. I don't know if that seems strange to you, but I think it shouldn't. Because we do the same thing every day, all the time. All the time. We don't want to be dominated by anyone. Not even by the true and living God. The truth is that every human being wants to serve a God they can dominate. So even though we know that Jesus is Lord, even though we sing that Jesus is Lord, even though we know that Almighty God reigns over all, and even though we know that our duty is to surrender all before him, we often choose instead to worship and to serve false gods, idols that the Lord Jesus has already vanquished, already defeated, already proven to everyone that they're nothing. We know that we're not God, and yet we worship and serve ourselves, pursuing our own desires and charting our own course. So we pursue money and comfort. We pursue fame and reputation. We seek power and respect. We just really, really want to be liked. Trying to get to the point where I just realized that nobody likes me. That'll just take all that pressure off. (laughs) We know that comfort and money and fame and reputation, we know, that, we know that riches aren't God. We know all that. 
We still pursue them. We still fall down before them. We still organize our lives and our thoughts and our families and our marriages and even our ministries around them. Jesus has defeated and unmasked all of that. But we go on adoring fame and the famous. We go on serving and seeking earthly prosperity. We build safe temples with high walls around them behind which we are able to protect our own comfort. Such things are not God and we know it. But serving those false gods means being able to serve ourselves. Those false gods permit us to concentrate on satisfying ourselves. They encourage to worship, they encourage us to worship ourselves. They let us think that we have the power to dominate our own lives, and that's what we really want. Nobody really wants a God who will dominate them. Everybody wants a God they can dominate. These false gods let us think that we have the power to make our own decisions. Serving gods like that, the dead kind, the false kind, means that we don't have to change. Worshiping them instead of the one true God means that nobody's going to demand anything of us beyond pleasing ourselves. This is why in Mark 5, the people of Gadara begged Jesus to leave them alone and to get out of town after he had liberated the poor guy who had been living among the tombs, tormented and torn by demons. Then, given a choice, should we ask this guy to stay or should we ask him to leave? They came out all together and all at once entreated him to leave them. They didn't want to serve someone who was so powerful. A master and a Lord who could actually change things. A God who actually dominated the evil among them. They were happier choosing their own way. Their own way of life without such all-powerful interference. It was way more comfortable to accommodate the demons among the tombs than to recognize the right and the desire of Jesus to change their lives and to give them eternal life. I'm afraid it's all too easy for us to act just like the Gadarenes when God confronts our own sin our own darkness, our own godless habits, our own temptation to gash ourselves with stones. It often seems easier and more comfortable to maintain our current wayward way of life than to surrender everything at the feet of Jesus, the one who changes everything. Seems to me that what we human beings fear most is an all powerful God. A God we can't control or dominate. A God who insists on being in charge. A God who reigns over all and who won't have it any other way for our own good. So, more often than perhaps we'd like to admit, Just like King Amaziah, we seek and worship false gods who will let us live our own lives, make our own decisions. Gods who won't require us to do anything uncomfortable. 
There are other examples in the scriptures. Think about Dagon, the Philistine fish god, for a minute. It's kind of fun to say that, Philistine fish god. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 5, but here are some of the particulars. Philistines capture the ark of God in battle. I mean, what they're not thinking is that God never really gets captured. He pretty much just goes wherever he wants. He lets them take him. They bring him back to Ashdod, set him up in the temple of Dagon, right right next to Dagon. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of respectful. They didn't put him in an outhouse in the back 40. They put him in the temple, right next to their God. They didn't put him beneath their God or anything like that. They put him put him right next there and the first night they're together Dagon falls off his pedestal and when they come in the next morning the priests of Dagon find that Dagon is lying prostrate before the true and living God so they do the same thing you'd do if you found your fish God lying face down on the floor when you got up in the morning they went over and they pick him up and they put him back on the pedestal but the next night God is being very patient here. He could probably just, you know, like, destroy. But he's just giving him a chance here. He's trying to speak to him. He's trying to show him something. He's trying to show him that their God isn't really God. Give him a chance. The next morning, when they get there, this time the Philistine fish god Dagon hasn't just fallen. His head has been chopped off and so have his hands. No head, no hands. So now the question is this. What are these Philistines going to do? What will the worshipers of Dagon do? Their God has obviously been shown to be nothing. It's not alive. It has power, just like the psalmist says. They have eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Mouths, but they can't speak. And God has given them a living demonstration This God you've been worshiping isn't God at all, but here I am. Head chopped off, hands chopped off. What are they going to do? Are they going to throw Dagon out? No. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off upon the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not step on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Listen, the most amazing thing in this story is not that the fish god fell over twice or that the second time was worse than the first time or that the, the, the Philistine fish god lost his head and then lost that. That's all really surprising. It should have been a little more surprising, I think, to the Philistines. But the most surprising thing is that after that happened, they picked him up, put him back on the pedestal, and there was still a house of Dagon. I mean, friends, if a restaurant poisons 50 people... And then the next weekend it happens again and it happens again. The restaurant has to close. People stop going back. Dagon fell. Dagon fell twice. Dagon lost his head. Dagon lost his hands. So this is what they did. They picked him up. They put him back on the pedestal. And they sent Yahweh away. I wish I could say it was a 
terribly Philistine thing to do, but what it is, is an awfully human thing. See, they decided to keep the true God at a distance and to keep on worshiping their false God, not because they thought Dagon was real, but because they knew he wasn't. Serving the real God would have meant changing their lives, changing their culture, telling their children they'd been wrong. Serving the false god meant having the freedom to continue as before. And remember, that false god Dagon, which was really just like a dead fish thing, he pretty much just let them do whatever they wanted. Dagon never spoke up. Dagon let them dominate their own lives without having to be confronted by a very real and very sovereign God who insists on dominating and who behaves as if he has the right to interfere in our lives. All of us would rather serve a God we can control and dominate. The one true God is too powerful, too unpredictable, too frightening, and too much in control. The truth is, quite often God's love and power frighten us because we don't want to surrender. Receiving his love and submitting ourselves to him means having to change the way we live, change the way I speak to my spouse, change the way I act at work, change the way I drive on a highway. Change the way we live, the way we think, the way we speak. Surrendering to God means no longer hiding anything. No longer deciding everything for myself. Most of us here know that the Lord Jesus brings us true liberty and that surrendering to him and obeying him sets us free. We also know that the false gods we seek, although they may promise us freedom and control, actually lead us into slavery. Even so, we often prefer those false gods that trick us into believing that we can reign over our own enslaved lives. Those who worship money become slaves of greed. Those who pursue fame and reputation become slaves of the opinions of others. And those who burn incense to their own comfort become slaves to their own flesh. We know that we shouldn't serve anybody or anything but the one true God. I'm going to guess that at least somebody in Dagon's temple must have at least wondered if it was the right thing to do to pick him back up again. Hey guys, I mean, what? I don't He doesn't really look very good anymore. Could it possibly? Does anybody really think it could be a coincidence? He's been sitting on that pedestal for a really long time, you guys. He's never fallen over. Now he's fallen over twice in one night. Uh, No, twice in two nights. Two nights in a row. How about that? Two nights in a row. And look what happened to him. I mean, this, this... This ark seems to represent something that's better and greater than... You guys really think... I mean, don't you think at least somebody wondered? Should we pick him up again? 
But we all keep putting Dagon back up on his pedestal. Because whether his head is attached or not, he encourages and allows us to do as we please. To serve ourselves. Because a God without a head can't tell us what to do. And a God without hands can't discipline us when we need it. That's why we prefer idols. They let us think that we're in charge. And that one true God is just too true, too living, too powerful, and too good for the likes of us. So this is what I mean when I say that human beings tend to choose gods they can dominate. We don't really want a living God who is really a living God, who has the right to issue his loving commands, who demands of us an absolute surrender, who calls us to love our neighbor as ourself and to serve one another in love, even when we disagree. So, we build temples for false gods that let us pretend that we're kings instead of servants. Um, I know that uh, this could sort of seem theoretical, so I want to try to make everything a little more uncomfortable by being slightly more specific. But in order to do this, I have to tell you a dream that I had, which this sort of thing doesn't happen to me all the time. But when I woke up from this dream, although I wasn't sure I understood it completely, um, I was I was sure it was from God. I was pretty sure it was from God. And after talking to a friend, I, I realized I think I might know what this dream is about and what I'm supposed to do with it. So okay, so here it is. So in this dream, I was standing in a place very like up there. Those of you who are of a certain age will remember when the college and career Sunday school class used to meet up there. Um, So it was a very familiar place to me. I was standing with my back to the railing, pretty full crowd up there, uh, the way it was in, in college and career days. And I was teaching. And while I was teaching, while what felt like to me the middle of my teaching everybody started to stand up and get ready to go. They, I was like in the, middle of a, in the middle of a thought. People started standing up, picking up backpacks, putting on coats, turning to one another and talking, making their way toward the exit. And I realized in that moment that time was up. That according to the clock, according to the clock, class was over and students were pretty sure that the class was over they weren't listening to me anymore but the problem was there was still more in my notes a lot more and in my dream as I stared at my notes I saw something unusual and those of you who know me well um, know that when I teach I do a lot of reading who I am, it's how I do it. So my notes look like this. You probably can't see this very well, but it's just words on a page. But in my dream, there were words on the top half, but the bottom half of my notes wasn't words. It was rows of beautifully wrapped 
packages, about an inch by an inch, very colorful, a row of red, a row of blue, a row of gold, a row of silver. And I didn't know what was in the packages, but what I knew was that in each package was a truth. In each package was a gift for them. But they were standing up and leaving. And they, they weren't leaving before time was up. According to the clock, time was up. According to the schedule, time was up. One thing that was different in the dream was that there was a passageway out there, and there were people passing in the hallways. It was time to leave. Other classes had already been let out. And in my dream, I said to the Lord, I just stared down at my notes. I said to the Lord, what should I do? It's, it's not over. There's all this left to say. You have all of this left to give, but there's no more time. What should I do? They're standing up. They're leaving. And while I was staring at my notes, in my dream, I felt my mouth open and I heard these words come out, but they weren't from my heart or from my mind. And this, these are the words that came out. The difference between a life lived in Jesus and a life lived outside of Jesus is who makes the decisions. The difference between a life lived in Jesus and a life lived outside of Jesus is who makes the decisions. Who gets to make the decisions. And I woke up. As I meditated on the dream and discussed it with my friend, I came to understand that the dream was at least in part about an idol in our lives. The idol of time. We know that time isn't God. We know that God reigns over time. That time is God's creature and God's servant. Still, we often worship time, setting up a temple for it in our hearts in the same way that Amaziah set up worship for gods that he knew weren't gods. We worship time. We know that time isn't God, but we've placed a clock and a calendar in the temple of our hearts because we want to dominate our own lives and make our own decisions about where and how we want to live our lives and spend our time, including our time in church. Deep down inside, we want to be masters of our own lives, make our own decisions, and so we burn incense to the clock. Worshiping the clock allows us to say, I'm going to do this, but not that. I'm going to walk in this direction, but not that one. I'll stay here for 20 minutes, but no more. I'll invest myself in this, but not in that, because of the demands of time. Because I have a demanding schedule. Ever heard those words come out here? The demands of time. The demanding schedule. Who's in charge here?
that phrase, the demands of time, or the demanding schedule is troubling because it suggests that time is in a position to command us. And we like it that way because like Dagon, the clock seems to allow us not to worship the true and living God whose power and whose right to dominate can make us so uncomfortable. In other words, worshiping the clock appears to give us the power to make our own decisions and plan our own lives. But listen to what James tells us in chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. In other words, I'm putting the Lord over my calendar. He decides, not my watch. James concludes by saying, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. The thing is, that however much we boast about being able to decide when and where to spend our time, the clock and the calendar calendar dominate us. They enslave us. They make demands on us. Because that's what false gods do. We use the clock as an excuse so that we can do as we please, but the clock and the calendar actually dominate us. They keep us running from pillar to post without rest, without thought, without worship, without devotion, without peace, without relationship. The clock dominates us severely and at the same time keeps us thinking that we are in control. Like all false gods, it promises us freedom and control, but it dominates us cruelly. It even chases us out of the presence of God on a daily and weekly basis. We leave the presence of the king because the time, the clock, the calendar command us to do so. I think the point of that dream was that if the clock dominates our lives and decides when God has to start and finish his work and his teaching, we're going to miss out on many, many important things and perhaps on everything. However, if we surrender to the Lord Jesus and refuse to let the clock dominate us, the Lord will work in our lives on a daily basis and will reveal to us things we've never seen before. Beautiful things. Beautifully wrapped. Gifts. Truths. That He is waiting for us to take the time to receive necessary things, things God has chosen for us, prepared for us, ordered for us, and even wrapped for us. I believe firmly that the Holy Spirit wants to move among us 
and that God wants to unwrap his word and his power among us in our daily devotional lives and in our collective worship experience. But when the Holy Spirit moves, he does not consult my watch or check my calendar. I've been in situated by the grace of God, I've been in situations in my life when the Holy Spirit is moving. And one of the things I've learned, and I actually literally do this sometimes, one of the things I've learned is that when the Holy Spirit begins to move, I take my watch off and put it in my pocket. I remember once when um, back home in Grand Rapids, there was an extended move of God, and one of my friends, a professor from another university uh, in a different part of the country, had come to visit, and and he wanted to go. He loves the Lord. And uh, while we were walking in, we were walking out of our car while he was asking me, what, you know, what, what can I expect here? And I said, you know what, really, I don't know, but take your watch off. And I was just so delighted that he just did it. He just took his watch off. And God touched him that night in an extremely powerful way. Maybe we need to take our watches off sometimes. Turn the phone off. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The one who is almighty, the one who is all-powerful, gets to decide when things start and when they end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. As the first and the last, and as the all-powerful one, he decides when everything begins and when everything ends. And he has not committed himself to checking to see if it's convenient for me. He decides when he's going to move, when that move will begin, and when it will end. And maybe there are some things that I can learn only when it is supremely inconvenient. Like the answer to the question, who's in charge? God is not a human being. And he does not follow a clock, a calendar, or the expectations of mortals. I believe that God wants to move among us. But if our expectation is that the Lord of the universe will submit himself to our clocks, our phones, and our calendars, and that he will move in ways that we find easy to understand and accommodate in our schedules, we are deeply wrong. Time belongs to God. And sometimes it pleases God to ignore it or even to act contrary to it. As, for example, the time he made the sun stand still. Can you imagine the headache that caused everybody's smartphones and tablets? What is the date? Anyway, Siri? Siri? 
But the people who really had a problem with it were the enemies of God. Part of the point of the story of Joshua and the sun that didn't go down is that if we want God to dominate our enemies, we have to understand and allow him to dominate our time to reign over our clocks and our customs. I once read the memoir of an American tank commander from World War II who 50 years after a particular battle was still furious with his British allies because in the middle of pitched battle against German tanks, the Brits stopped for tea. (laughs) And the American commander 50 years later, it's fun to make fun of our British cousins. But 50 years after the battle, the American tank commander raised his fist and said to the interviewer, You call that fighting? So we can laugh about it, but we do the same thing. We can be engaged in a great battle or on the verge of a great victory or in the midst of a move of God at the point of receiving vital instruction from God, a vital defeat over an enemy, and we can say to ourselves, oops, time to go. Just like the students in my dream. God hadn't said to them, I've got all these packages for you. They were in my notes. I knew they were there. I didn't know what was in them. Part of the tragedy of the dream was that the notes were laden with beautiful gifts and truths. But everybody just stood up and went without receiving them because the clock commanded them to. You know, the truth is, a long time ago, A.W. Tozer said that anyone who wants to know God must give him hours. And that's true. That's totally true. Although God doesn't keep track minutes, hours. You know, hours are made of minutes, so if what you got is minutes in the car, well, you go for it. But the truth is, if you've given your life to Christ, you don't have any hours to give him. Because you can't give your life to Christ without having already given him the hours. If you've given your life to Christ, you've given him your time. You've already done it. All the hours of a Christian already belong to Jesus. It's impossible to give your life to Christ and not give him your time. Life and time are inseparable. When a person loses his or her life, that person loses his or her time. Look at Psalm 31, verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. If Joshua hadn't put his time in God's hands, God might not have been able to defeat, not able, you know what I'm saying? 
Because Joshua, I mean, the sun was in a way, it was like his phone, right? What time is it? You look at the sun. Joshua threw the sun into the hands of God. And God was able to defeat his enemies. How many of our enemies do we have still hanging around because we're still worshiping time? Still trying to control things. That, that verse in, uh, in Psalm 31, in the Hebrew, this is how it reads, You are my God, my hours are in your hand. In context, the psalmist is saying that God holds in his hand all the hours of his life and that the enemies who are pursuing him cannot decide, do not have the power or the right to decide when his life will end, when there will be no time, because our hours and our lives are inseparable, and if our lives are in God's hands, then so are our hours. And if an enemy can prevent me from leaving my hours in God's hand, he can ensure that part, at least part of my life is not. As Jesus says in Luke 12, in the parable of the rich fool, although human beings have many plans and make their own decisions regarding how to spend their lives, when God decides that their time is up, there won't be any more life. In fact, that's what we say, isn't it? A person's time was up. The rich man in Luke 12 says this, And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God replies, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You see, God decides. God has the power over our time, over our hours, over our resources, over our lives. He is the Almighty, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If we are in Christ, then we must understand that having given Him our lives, we have also given Him our time. So it makes no sense to say, I belong to Jesus and to behave as if my time were my own. Because if my life is in the hands of God, then all my hours are also in His hand. If Christ is Lord, if Jesus is Master of my life, that means that Christ is Lord of my time, Lord of my hours, and that He has the exclusive right to make decisions in and about my life. But a God like that isn't very comfortable. Maybe we'd prefer a false God. A God we can dominate, an idol that will permit us to arrange our own schedules according to the clock instead of walking with Christ and letting him lead and decide. When I say that we serve our calendars and that we worship the false God of time, I'm not saying that anybody bows, nobody's bowing down and, you know, nobody's nobody's saying, oh great, electronical calendar. Thou art ever present with me. Nobody's doing that.
supreme calendar tell me what to do and where to go? It's not like, we're not really like that. It's sort of like, it's sort of like Downton Abbey, you know? The servants can be in the servants' hall eating lunch, and Lady Mary's bell goes, ding, 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 whoop. Because the bell rang. And it shows absolutely with crystal clarity who is the master and who is the servant. Because when the bell rings, we go. You see it everywhere. I, I, I was just at swimming lessons with... with uh, with my youngest. Nobody wa- parents don't watch swimming lessons anymore. Look, because of the way my family went, because of the way Leslie and my family went, I've been going to swimming lessons every summer for 25 years. <laughs> so, I've seen changes. And now, nobody watches swimming lessons anymore. It's funny because if you stare at your phone long enough, you develop the Dagon fish face. (laughs) You know, worshiping the clock isn't very good for us. The clock and the calendar dominate us. And it's harsh. We're filled with stress. We're pushed around. We're crushed by the daily demands of time. And we suffer the consequences in our lives, in our physical bodies, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our families, in our ministries. But Jesus, whom we call Lord, walked in great peace in spite of crushing crowds, in spite of pressing demands, in spite of powerful enemies who were trying to kill him. It isn't that he wasn't busy. You know, some, some people in this room are just supremely busy people. It's like my pastor says, the world is run by tired men and women. Very busy. Jesus was very busy. But he didn't serve his busyness. He subjected his busyness to his heavenly father. You know how you know? Because whenever he was interrupted, it didn't bother him. Just like you, right? Just like me. He walked in tremendous peace. He knew that his life was in the hands of his father. That meant that his time was also in his father's hands. Nobody was going to take his life from his father's hands. And every minute of every day of his life, Jesus surrendered his hours, his minutes, and his plans into the hands of his heavenly father. And the result was perfect peace. It isn't that he wasn't busy or that he wasn't threatened. It's that he refused to be dominated by busyness. He surrendered all of it to God.
So look, don't worry, I'm not announcing that all the services of this church or that the coming services this Wednesday are all going to be five hours long. What I'm saying is that Jesus is Lord and the clock isn't. The difference between a life lived in Jesus and a life lived outside of Jesus is who gets to decide when it's time to go. Is it him or the clock? Is it him or me? Him or my comfort? As a church, we need to understand that Jesus, not the clock, is Lord of all. Because when the Spirit of God moves, he pays no attention to our clocks and calendars. And he's not really very concerned about our plans. So now, beforehand, let's surrender our time to him so that when he moves in our daily devotions or in our weekly services or any time in between, we already know how to ignore and reject the idol of time and human timing so that we know how to follow the good shepherd who doesn't wear a watch so that we know when we're faced with one God who is true and living and all-powerful and another that's a headless and handless fish, we know which one to keep and which one to get rid of. Let's not choose a false God. Let's not serve an idol that we know is not God. Let's serve the Lord Jesus, surrendering our lives to him, which means surrendering all of our time to him, understanding that he has the exclusive right to decide, to move by his Holy Spirit when, where, and how he chooses. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, I repent of living a life of tremendous nervousness and anxiety because of the clock. I have always needed to be a half an hour early. Lord, I, I don't necessarily want to be late, but here's what I don't want to be. I don't want to be dominated by anyone or anything but you. In your presence, in my devotions, I want you to rule not my expectations, not my clock, not my calendar. And when I walk into the meeting of your people, I want to take my watch off. I want to enter into your time. I say that you are the first and the last, that you are the all-powerful one, that you and you alone have the right to decide. Alpha and Omega beginning and end. In Jesus' name, amen.